0: Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in.
1: The Presidency of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of the Seat at the Table special series, I am joined by a special guest. We're going to be discussing the life and career of a cabinet member. But before we get to that, I would like to introduce my special guest, who is Mr. DGMH himself, Zach from from Drinks with Great Minds in History. Zach, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, thank you for having me on. And don't worry about the name. Keep it right in there. Don't edit it out because (laughs) the greatest mistake I ever made was picking such a long podcast name for my show. If I could go back, I'd call it. uh, I I don't even know what I'd call it, but anything but what I called it. Uh, You you need two words, no more. Uh, The presidency's podcast. That's enough. That's perfect. It says the point. Uh, But thank you so much, Jerry, for having me on. I'm so glad we finally, I mean, this has been months of us trying to get together, uh, mostly my own schedule. I mean, anybody who listens to my show, if you've listened, season three has been the season of rise and fall characters in history, Uh, from Christina of Sweden to Napoleon III, even to Teddy Roosevelt himself, someone you'll, I'm sure, dive very deep into eventually. The rise and fall was fun, but I think the fall part was trying to get me. Uh, and, uh, I'm in Florida. I know you were in North Carolina, and I yes. we got hit by Ian. Now I was very fortunate in oh, it, yes. but it's been this. I've said many times this season is out to kill me. Uh, so luckily, my show has survived. Um, but do you want me to talk about my show now or? Absolutely, absolutely, and as a
1: fellow podcaster, I think I can speak and. In- I think all podcasters can. Sometimes life just gets in the way and we just try and persevere through it, but we do what we can. And sometimes it just... (laughs) it gets chaotic. So thank you so much for being here. And I'm I'm glad that you're here and that we were finally
2: able to make this work. So the true side of a podcaster is that we say life gets in the way of the podcast. What we don't acknowledge <laughs> is that everyone else in our lives is saying your podcast gets in the way of our lives. Uh, my my wife true. wants to often strangle me for this podcast. The only reason I had time to get together twice the night with one on my show and one on your show is because my wife's out of town. And I'm like, Well, why not do it tonight? Because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. (laughs) So, (laughs) but life does get in the way. But my show, uh, you, you know, um, thank you for introducing the show drinks with great minds in history. Um, we cover say a lot of the same people you have and will cover. We've covered Washington, Jefferson. I don't know where you fit Hamilton exactly into your show, but we covered Hamilton as well. Adams is in the lineup. Um, I've covered presidents in the side. I covered the Monroe Doctrine in an episode, but basically short version is uh, we, it's a, it's a reason to drink for me and some history for my listeners where I sit there and talk about the history of great minds and the impact they had on society while also calling them out for all of their terrible atrocities that they committed or their failings or their shortcomings. And I, I I never pull any punches and and the cool thing about, and you could probably discuss this too, is podcasting is about growth. Mm -hmm. I'm sure when you started this show, you didn't go. It's different now, and for me, I've grown so much as a, a historian by doing this podcast, and as a teacher. And I am I am a teacher. Uh, I I did warn Jerry at the beginning. I would use my teacher language for this show. I do not <laughs> use my teacher language on DGMH, but uh, you know, just to put it out there, you can find the show anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. We've covered great minds from Theodore Roosevelt to Charles II of England to Catherine de Medici of France to. Uh, most recently Napoleon the third of France. Uh, so there's plenty of great unique content out there. And I'd love for you all listeners of the Presidency's podcast to come on over and have a listen and I'll be sending mine your way, Jerry. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So glad to have you here. And I am a listener of your
1: podcast and I know that you've had quite a few episodes on George Washington and I have as well. And like you said, it's, it's one of those things about these figures in history there is so much to talk about in terms of their successes, but also you have to highlight that they were human, yes. and th- that they made mistakes. And that's been a guiding principle at presidencies from the beginning. And, and like you, Zach, I feel like I've really grown into this. And, you know, you, you always think back to those early episodes and you're like, oh, well, I wish I would have done things a bit differently. But you just got to. Move forward and sometimes
2: revisit remasterings are great. Yeah. I love a remaster <laughs> this has been the season of remasterings for me too i mean i I went into George and I was like, I added twenty five minutes of content to that episode, and I was like, no, first off, I love George Washington and I, you said you covered many episodes on your show too, and it's just mm-hmm. it's hard not to love George Washington, but it's also hard not to hate everyone who just blindly loves george washington like come on he's a human being all of these great figures these presidents are human beings and it's the humanness they bring to the office of the presidency in my opinion that makes them truly wonderful dare i say great uh so i i, I i'm excited I, I don't get to come on other podcasts enough so i'm very excited to discuss this with another podcaster absolutely so, um, but we're not discussing presidents. We're discussing some no-name guy that I don't know from a cabinet. I kind of, I, I, whenever he presented it to me, it's like, "Oh, we're going to discuss a president," and I was like, "Wait, he wants me to discuss a cabinet member?" And I'm like, uh But um, yes, what well, you know? Do you want me to talk about my teaching thing I wanted to tell you now or?
0: absolutely yeah
2: so i'm actually teaching a cabinet member right now a very important cabinet member secretary of state john hay and the in my classroom we're discussing the open door notes and we're discussing the splendid little war and the spanish-american war and that's where we are and i'm like boy that would have been great could have talked about that and he's like we're gonna (laughs) be talking about like early 1800s cabinet members i'm like please be James Monroe. Please be James Monroe. I doubt it's going to be James Monroe, but I'm like, is there another one other than James Monroe? And I know there are. So I'm actually excited to learn tonight, Jerry. So thank you so much for having me. on.
1: Absolutely. And before we get to that, I did want to share, because I I heard that there was a mention of Warren Harding on a recent episode. And if you're looking for a president that has a rise and fall Warren Harding is your
2: guy. One one of my favorites (laughs) to teach, Uh, Warren Harding. And talk about a cabinet administration. Have fun. Oh, my god! When you get to that, have fun on your little teapot dome, Jerry, because you are going to be there for a while. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, uh, that's that's so fun. But Warren G. Harding, aside from being just Warren G. Oh, my God. So fun to teach. I mean, the teacher me's me is coming out. I'm not allowed to swear, so I have to bust out my teacher's side. I'm like, oh, my God, I love Warren G. Harding. Cal- I, I, I mean, like the, the point he's bringing up is I bring up the two baseball pictures of Harding and Coolidge throwing the opening pitch at a game. And Harding just looks so happy. And he's like so excited to be there. And Coolidge is like, please let me go home.
0: And it's just Can so, I go
2: home? Yeah. It's like I say to my kids, like, what does this say? About the character of the people. They're very different people. It's not a bad or good thing, it's just a (laughs) fact. They're different people in the office and they bring their own personalities there. And it's so fun to study. And that's why you do this podcast, Jerry. I know. I know that's why you do this podcast. To to look into the person, you I listened to a recent episode of yours too, where you were like uh talking with another podcaster's like, he avoids going into every minute detail of their lives. I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I know I do that too, but you you it's it's I would love to be able to dive into the detail you do. So I am so excited to hear where we're going tonight. Absolutely.
1: So without further ado, let's go ahead. I have not revealed yet who we are talking about. So we are going to be talking about Robert Smith.
2: No now, have you heard of Robert no, Smith? No, am I allowed to look him up real quick? <laughs> is that a thing? Can I at least see his picture? Can I look up Robert Smith? Uh, <laughs> I don't even want to know. I, if you want, I'll go blind. I'll go blind. I am yeah. disappointed as a historian. I'm a Europeanist, by the way, I, I study early modern Europe. So this is not my wheelhouse, but
1: well, and and I will say that there is a reason that you have probably not heard of Robert Smith. And for those who have happened to have heard about Robert Smith, there's probably a reason why, and we're going to get into that. So are you ready to learn about the life and career of Robert Smith. I'm ready to learn
2: who Robert Smith is and whose presidency he served under. But yes, I certainly am, Jerry. Yes,
1: I am. All righty. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. So as we usually do, we're going to start giving a little background with the family. So the Smith family, and this is specifically his uh, paternal grandparents and father, immigrated from St. Brisbane, Ireland to Pennsylvania in 1728. And I know you had mentioned that you're originally from Pennsylvania, so somebody from your neck of the woods. Yes,
2: yes. And those those early old immigrant populations of Scots-Irish and Irish immigrants to Pennsylvania backcountry areas Totally makes sense. This fits. Okay. (laughs) Exactly.
1: And Smith's biography didn't state exactly where they settled, but they moved to Carlisle, Pennsylvania a couple of decades later in 1750. And Robert's father, John Smith, established himself in the area. So rather generic name yes john smith, john but. smith.
2: yes yes <laughs> don't be confused listeners we're not talking about the not pocahontas guy and i can't say the pocahontas guy because he's not the pocahontas guy only in the movie is john smith the pocahontas guy but yes so this is
1: just some random guy named john smith right exactly well and, and that's just like with robert smith when i've told my husband about robert smith he's like oh from the cure and i'm like no <laughs> not that robert smith He's he's not that cool. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean,
2: I love it. I love it. that's fantastic.
1: <laughs> but so his father, John Smith, him and his wife, Mary Buchanan, had five children with Robert, the youngest of the five, being born on November 3rd, 1757 in Lancaster County. A couple of years later, they, along with a few other families, departed from Pennsylvania and resettled in the town that would become the center of both Robert and his older brother, Samuel's lives, Baltimore, Maryland. Now, at the time they arrived, Robert's biographer, Tom Armstrong, described Baltimore as follows, quote, the small hamlet, which contained a few dozen houses, one inn, a shipyard, a brewery, and a population of less than 1,000 persons.
2: Well, at least there was a brewery.
1: <laughs> I know, right? If if it's going to be a small town, you've got to have a brewery. If I'm going to go to a <laughs> hamlet, I'm going to go to one with a brewery. Yes. <laughs> Still, you know, even though it was small at that time, as a key port location on the eastern seaboard, Baltimore grew quickly, and John Smith realized that he and his family could capitalize on this opportunity. Thus, he partnered with his brother-in-law and established, quote, one of the most prosperous shipping and mercantile enterprises in America. Now, as with the other figures that we've covered in this series, we don't really know many details about Robert Smith's upbringing until he entered College at the College of New Jersey at Princeton, what we now know of as Princeton University, and this was while the Revolutionary War was raging. So while Robert's older brother Samuel was engaged in military service throughout the war and rose to the rank of colonel, Robert himself took a break from his collegiate studies to participate in the Battle of Brandywine in 1777. But after this brief service, Robert returned school and graduated from the College of New Jersey in 1781. So as the war wound down after the Battle of Yorktown that year, Robert was busy trying to figure out his next steps in life. And he decided after college that he wanted to become a lawyer, and thus he studied under Robert Goldsboro in his law
2: office for five years.
1: So, you know, we've had quite a few lawyers who have become cabinet members, and that's a trend that's going to continue on. But here we have yet another lawyer.
2: I I actually think I remember him now. I I, just because I'm a Jeffersonian guy. I I love Jefferson, but this is Jefferson era, right? That's where we're at. It is. Uh, Is he? And I don't am I allowed to spoil a point, a sub point here? Was Was he like an attorney general at one point? yes-ish okay yes-ish Ooh, i love the ish okay I, th- <laughs> I, I think i have an idea of who he is and I think this is actually way more exciting as a cabinet member than i i than i than i well i didn't know what to expect in all honesty but <laughs> but when you said robert smith it was like robert smith robert smith robert smith i'm like trying to think where i heard that name before and i remember somewhere in my my jefferson research seeing something and that name that name's very generic though so it's very hard not to and you're very right but okay sorry i interrupted your, your oh your no worries
1: no worries. And and that's the thing. And we're going to have quite a bit to discuss. You know, and, and this early part, it's this is actually when I was going through the outline, it was like, OK, we're going through this rather quickly. Oh, he's already a cabinet member. Yes. Yeah. And so just in a few minutes, we will be at his cabinet time. But after passing the bar, Robert started to build up a law practice of his own. He was primarily engaged in admiralty law. And so that was, you know, makes sense for Baltimore. Like many other young men of means at the time, Robert also entered into the western land speculation business, and over time held claim to hundreds of thousands of acres of land, sometimes in sole ownership and other times as part of a partnership. But as the new nation worked to establish a viable form of government, first under the Articles of Confederation, then under the Constitution, Robert Smith was establishing himself both professionally and personally. So going with the, the personal first on December 7th, 1790, Robert Smith and Margaret Smith were married. And yes, her maiden name was Smith. We've got a little bit of a, not a Habs- Roosevelt thing not, going on here. It's
2: not a Habsburg here. thing. It's a Roosevelt thing. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's loose, a Roosevelt well, thing. A Distant instance, cousin. So just a touch. Just a touch of Vincent. <laughs> off. And, and, And actually,
1: even more distant than the Roosevelts, it seems like it was a distant cousin, but both were named Smith. Though the couple had eight children, only one son, Samuel W. Smith, who was born in August 1800, lived to maturity. And we've talked about this in the past on on this series. You know, child mortality was just, it was abysmal.
2: I was actually talking about that with my wife the other day, right? Is is yeah. why was the average life expectancy? So like, we were big Outlander fans, and she's like, why are people dying? So yeah, why is the average life people just died in their 40s? Like, no, people didn't just die in their 40s. Actually, the average age was in the 30s into the 1900s, yeah. and that's because babies died so often. So it's yeah. an average life expectancy, not just the year everyone died. Every You go through high school, and my students always think, oh, everybody died by age 37. I was like, no, that's not how it Worked. Just babies died very easily. Childbirth alone exactly. was a deadly, oh a deadly gosh. undertaking. Um, I couldn't imagine going through. Well, as a man, I couldn't imagine going through a period but, uh, <laughs> as, as a as a modern human being. I couldn't imagine with 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 anyone in that period studying Catherine de Medici, Catherine who bore ten children, Catherine the Great who bore uh, a, ch- a child, and, and um, Isabella of bore several children. It's just wow. Like this was, yeah. Uh, you know, dangerous. It wasn't just. Yeah. Necessary. It was, it is deadly. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and for those who haven't listened to the John Marshall episode yet, that definitely came into play with Polly Marshall and you really get to see, you know, it was so dangerous for the children. It was so dangerous for the mother. It, you know, this was a, a, a difficult prospect. Well, I, I will
2: go back and listen to that because I love John Marshall.
1: Yeah, I highly recommend checking out. I um, actually had two episodes. So one was like this format. And then the other was with a couple of folks from the John Marshall house and mm. focusing in on his time as oh, wow. chief justice. So highly
2: recommend that. I will definitely check out the, the both. Yeah, I love John. I love John Marshall. It's so fun. So so his career is so long, but we're on Robert Smith. Oh, Yes. Who, as I recall, lived a pretty long life. Actually, did he even do like his 80s or 90s? Like I, <laughs> he did, <laughs> I <was> like,
1: <laughs> he did, and and to to bring it back from John Marshall, um, so Robert Smith will serve in a post that John Marshall did. Mm. Stay tuned.
2: We'll oh, get to that. Oh, oh my gosh! I think <laughs> I know even more who this is. Oh my gosh! Yes, and it's not the post you think. It's the post that came before the post you think, right? Exactly. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Yes. Oh, oh yes. I think I remember this name even more now. Okay. Okay. I, okay. Go. I'm ready to go now. Go ahead. Yeah. You keep going.
1: So Smith would start his political career around the same time that he got married, starting with being chosen as a presidential elector in the very first presidential election. So here we've got Washington. And naturally, we know that he voted for Washington along with all the other electors because Washington was elected unanimously. Right. And Smith's name would be put forward to the new president by mutual acquaintance as a possible candidate for a judgeship in the new federal court system, with the friend asserting that Smith was one of the, quote, most learned and respectable men in Maryland. But as there were many candidates put forward in these early days, and he was still towards the beginning of his his career. You've
2: got John Jay's and everything there, yeah.
1: Exactly. You've got all these other folks who are vying for office. And so Washington gave a pass on Smith this go-round. But as the older brother, naturally Samuel rose faster than Robert. He earned a seat in the Maryland House of Delegates in 1790. Then he won election to the U.S. House of Representatives for a term beginning in 1793. He'd remain in that legislative house until 1803 when he moved over to the U.S. Senate. But for Robert, he began his elected career in earnest when he joined the Maryland State Senate in 1793. He served in that body until 1795. Then in the next year, he moved over to the Maryland House of Delegates, which was the same body that gave his brother his political start. But starting in 1798, simultaneously to service in the state house, Robert became a member of the Baltimore city council. And this is one of those interesting things in the early Republic. You've got all these folks who somehow collect offices and they serve in multiple, you know, they'll serve in a a local office, a state office, a federal office at the same time.
2: Right. 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 Well, there's just not enough people at this. I mean, in theory, there are plenty of people. There aren't enough people of, of name and prominence, I suppose, you know,
1: exactly. And also the duties weren't quite as strenuous as they would be in later eras. So it's like, okay, well you yeah, you only need a few days to do this, a few days to do that. So but it would be Samuel's rise that would have the greatest impact on Robert's career prospects taking a large leap. Because at the time that Thomas Jefferson assumed the presidency in eighteen oh one, so I said we were gonna speed up pretty yeah. quickly. The Navy Department was still relatively new, having only been created in late April 1798.
2: And something Jefferson hesitated to maintain in the first place, but ironically had to maintain exactly. because, you know, fighting pirates. Uh, but yeah, absolutely.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing. So for Federalists, it was it was like it was a no brainer. It was Navy, Navy, Navy. Yeah. They had a geographic base in Maritime New England and the Mid-Atlantic Coast. So it was easy for them to find good candidates for the Navy Department. But for Democratic-Republicans, there weren't quite the plethora of professionals from which to choose. And it also didn't help that they that the Democratic-Republicans had campaigned in the 1800 election, no. and Jefferson was definitely committed to cutting the size of the U.S. military. Right.
2: I talked about that as one of his great hypocrisies, right? His, <laughs> I will <laughs> oh, cut yes. the Navy, but... I won't be so threatened about it if you'll elect me to the office of president. We've got the whole Burr controversy going there, the (laughs) Burr-Jefferson tie 36 times. And, uh, you know, we have the whole Barbary pirates thing. And it's like, well, I'm going to cut the Navy, but we need the Navy right now. So I'm going to low-key just up the Navy, send it overseas, and kick some pirate booty. Uh,
1: (laughs) And that's the thing, you know, it was... It was one of those things, and especially at the early part of the administration, who wants to be the head of a department that you know is going to get cut and lose its importance? Right. So it was a hard sell for folks. So then Representative Samuel Smith of Maryland agreed to assume the post on an interim basis, and he had a a temporary time where the, the original Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddart, agreed to stay on. But after that, he's like, I've got to go. And so Samuel Smith was going to fill in temporarily, but he made it clear. He's like, I want to go back to the house. I have no interest in being secretary of the Navy. I mean,
2: I get that. (laughs) I really do. Yeah. I mean, who who would really want It's like saying, Hey, would you like to be hired for this new job? We can guarantee you a salary for two months. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing, you know, Samuel Smith, he made the point. He, he felt quote,
1: That he could exercise more influence in Congress than in the newest and least significant of the cabinet positions. And he hoped in taking the role temporarily that he would earn some favor with Jefferson because he was really angling for a diplomatic post.
2: That's smart. I mean, that's a, that's a oh, diplomatic. Yeah. People ignore diplomatic posts. They are stepping stones to higher offices. They really, really are. I mean, many of the presidents of the United States served abroad first. It's like a, it's like a mandatory stepping stone from, uh, Jefferson Adams to Jefferson to Monroe to Quincy Adams. I mean, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, Buchanan got elected because he was abroad during all the mess of <laughs> the the pre Civil the the <laughs> Antebellum era. You, you know, so. Uh, it's it's a when we say that we know that it's a big deal, but wanting an oh, ambassadorship yeah. might be a fast track more than you think. Y- y- you know, oh yes,
1: oh yes, and we'll see a little of that in this episode. But you know, Smith around early July eighteen oh one, he was like, "Look, I really need to go ahead and hand this over to somebody," and it became clear that Jefferson needed somebody to help him find a suitable replacement. And Samuel Smith didn't have to look far, for a candidate. He thought of his younger brother, Robert. As described by Samuel Smith biographer Frank Castle, quote, although Robert was a lawyer with limited experience in naval affairs, Jefferson undoubtedly hoped that he would be guided by his brother. Moreover, the appointment of Robert Smith was probably dictated by a desire on Jefferson's part to maintain good relations between the administration and the Maryland Republicans of whom Samuel Smith was the principal leader. So just as Samuel was trying to curry favor, so too Jefferson realized that he needed to maintain that relationship. And so sure, you know, your younger brother, that's, that's a good candidate. And especially since, you know, he had already approached Robert R. Livingston of New York. He had approached John Langdon of New Hampshire, William Jones of
2: Pennsylvania, none of them wanted the post, and so and Livingston would have been Jefferson's what ambassador to France, right? Or not? Amb- yes. No, not ambassador. Wait, minister. Minister to France. Minister to France. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, because the term
1: ambassador was seen as having two um monarchical aristocratic heirs to it and so these were minister plenipotentiaries
2: yes but that's i mean yes. we give jefferson all the credit for the louisiana purchase and yeah he did break a lot of his own obstacles and brick walls that he put up himself for no reason at all and that's great but livingston's huge there in negotiating oh yes well i mean he kind of just oh yeah and said hey we'll give you this and they're like or you can have all of Louisiana, but (laughs) sure. Okay. Uh, Why not? Livingston's a cool, interesting character. I've actually fallen in love. Oh yes. uh, As a, somebody I studied on the show quite a bit, but
1: yeah. Oh yes. And, and that's the thing, you know, how things may have been different if Livingston hadn't really wanted that diplomatic post, but at the same time, as you mentioned, Zach, you know, that this was seen as a stepping stone to larger things in the future. So of course he wanted that instead of this, what was seen as a dead end right. secretary of the Navy position well, in
2: this period too. There's a greater desire difference in desires. What one mm. might have wanted might not have been the presidency today. Everyone wants the presidency. If you're on a stepping stone path, you're on the stepping stones to the presidency back then. Exactly. Governorships being a role leader in state governments were equally important, if not more important to some of mm-hmm. these players that we're discussing, you know, Sam Adams would have never sat back and said, Well, I the highest position I ever achieved was governor of Massachusetts, Paul Revere, whatever it might have been. Uh these people who served their states, they didn't just disappear into nothingness. They got what they wanted. They were Exact. They were of a different belief system. It's just the federal system won out. Uh, so <laughs>
1: Exactly. And, and that's the thing, you know, it was seen as, you know, you can go for the diplomatic post and come back and be able to, and and we've seen other folks like that. You know, we saw with John Jay, even though he was chief justice, it was really going and negotiating the Jay Treaty. And then he came back and he was governor of New York, you know, and, and you've got all these different career paths in politics at this time and it wasn't necessarily the presidency that everybody was angling for and with some of these it was you know i want to go and serve abroad and then come back and have a cabinet post right or and to secretary prove, of state or whatever to
2: prove that that's true well into the 20th century i point to taft right presidents presidents yeah. come and go the supreme court is forever you know different <laughs> posts have different abilities and powers and i mean we get during the Taft court. Gitlow v. New York, you know, so it's yeah, everybody has its power. That's the glory of the federal system, you know, checks and exact separations of powers, all that Madisonian logic, I suppose. Not Hamiltonian logic, Madisonian logic. No, Uh, Madisonian. 48, 49, 50, the 51, I think, or what the Federalist Papers, those are, those are Madison babies, right? I think I'd have to yes, refresh my government text.
1: (laughs) Well, and and that's the thing. So for Robert Smith, you know, the fact that he's still so early on in his career, this is a huge leap for him. Even though these established politicians were like, oh, well, you know, that's a that's a lower office. For Robert Smith, this was an opportunity. And so naturally he jumped to the chance. And so he resigned from the Baltimore City Council on July twentieth. He had already left his seat in the Maryland House of Delegates the prior year. And so with these last obligations cut he made his way to Washington, D.C., and he assumed office as the second U.S. Secretary of the Navy on July 27, 1801. Now, we should note here that the Navy department that Smith ran was quite small compared to the military-industrial complex of the present day. As described by historian Leonard White, quote, the civilian branch of the department consisted of the secretary and his office and the accountant and his clerks, Smith managed with three clerks during most of his term. The accountant before the War of 1812 had less than 10. The secretary had no professional aides or advisors in his office. He was the department. Whatever had to be authorized or done, he authorized and did. To him reported the civilian superintendents or naval commandants of six Navy yards, as well as a fluctuating and widely scattered number of Navy agents. Each ship was usually an independent unit, its commander receiving orders directly from the secretary. So there was a lot of responsibility on this one person to manage the navy and thinking of the navy as being everything from the ships in the field to you know the actual navy yards.
2: It, it's more it's than just a lot. It, it's more than most cabinet members would have had to deal with even in that time, right? It's not just Hey, you're the guy in charge. It's hey you're the guy in charge, but we also need you to you know go babysit the sailor's kid on Tuesday because we got nobody else to do it you know like I, I get what you're saying it's it's a a mess of a job. It's like exactly it's more like an assistant secretary to the to the Navy today. it's it's Roosevelt yeah as an assistant secretary you know I just taught that today in my classroom Roosevelt doing all the real work and building the Navy during the McKinley administration because a McKinley was McKinley B the secretary of the Navy didn't care and see Roosevelt is Roosevelt. So he's like, well, let's build the, <laughs> I'm here. So we'll build the Navy. But you know, like that's the kind of you you're on the ground. It's, 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 it's legwork. Oh, yeah. And this, this Smith guy, Robert Smith is, is more interesting for that for certain. But I, I know this is the end, right? This isn't the end of his career. I know he goes further. Oh yes. Well,
1: and, and that's the thing. So, and, and you brought up a good point because when Smith started in this post, we were already at war with Tripoli. Mm. So, you know, and we talked about this on the special series. We talked about this in the Jefferson administration. The, um, the Pasha of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli had declared war on the U S because he, this was one of those semi autonomous nation States along the North African coast at the time. Uh, They were dubbed the Barbary States. Yes. Yeah. And basically they would, attack shipping in the mediterranean unless they were given a tribute and given gifts and all of this
2: right they're they're bribery pirates not just barbary pirates. exactly they're bribery pirates. <laughs> exactly they, they are they are pirates there's there's by every definition of the word they are pirates with a flag pirates with a backer pirates with ties to the ottoman empire and they can they can, they can back them up just enough to say hey you have to fall you have to do this and it's like it's like reminiscent of the spoils system in a way. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. But I'm gonna get scratched. Exactly. More. Uh, yes. Exactly. It's, it's a joke. And I, so is he Secretary of Navy through all of Jefferson's administration? Yes. yes. Okay, that's why I yes. remember this name then I think is because I, I I love the 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 what do they call them? The Barbary Wars, I guess. The trip, the wars of the Tripoli, and such such dramatic stories. And I'm by no means favoring um, any news outlet other than, uh, than in any way by saying this. But I, as far as storytelling, Brian Kilmeade's book uh, on Jefferson the Tripoli Pirates is is a an enjoyable read it's a good it's a good example of storytelling if brian kilmeade actually wrote it but uh you know i'm not sitting here saying listen to brian kilmeade he is god or whatever i'm saying like i I, i'm just saying reading the book it was short sweet and fun it was a it was a ver it was a version of storytelling that you might not get from another book on the the barbary wars you know and um I remember exactly. enjoying it. It made me want to look into so many of the characters so much more that, that might not have, that, that weren't just Jefferson and it, it, full of unique naval battles and ships being lit on fire. It's oh. such a fun little war. Well, and and that's the thing it it was,
1: and we'll talk a bit more about that because, you know, and that's the thing like Smith is going to be heavily involved in yeah. this because this is a, a war that's happening across the Atlantic. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got the Barbary pirates, they end up, they get their their bribes, their tributes. And in the Washington and Adams administrations, they had pretty much said, you know what? It's not worth it yeah. to go to war with them. Let's just go ahead yeah. and pay the tributes. They had negotiated yep. treaties with all of them. Yusuf Karamanli said, well, it's great that we've agreed to this tribute. We've got this good stuff. And I want more. Yeah. And so when they said no you know we're sticking with the treaty that we've got he said i'm declaring more
2: right and i mean jefferson the other thing worth noting is jefferson was in france during those years during the mm-hmm. washington ministry or before the washington ministry he was there in the earliest years where those treaties were being forced you know uh before the country even existed as it does today and he had seen Tripoli pirates and you know how it affected trade and even though he wasn't a big Navy guy, and I mean, big Navy, not like he liked it a lot, but like he wasn't a big Navy guy, you know, he, he understood him. Yeah. But Jefferson was, Jefferson's greatest maybe attribute might have been, I can look over myself for a hot second some of the time and do what needs to be done. <laughs> not always, not not close to home, but in big picture geopolitical exactly. issues he could look past his own bs and and and, <laughs> and and you know figure it out but robert smith is our topic not jefferson but yes. robert smith is jefferson in the barbary wars basically
1: exactly well and, and that's the thing zach that's exactly what we get to because you have jefferson coming in and even though jefferson is mr small military we just need it for defense because he had this experience you know him and adams when they were diplomats in europe they were starting the process of negotiating right. with the barbary states and he knew what the situation was on the ground he knew that there needed to be a show of force right. and so which was like four or five
2: ships back then it's not like, exactly <laughs> it's not like the whole entire spanish armada you know it's like no let me, totally, let me be i mean i was shocked the barbary was like 10 ships i'm like They said four (laughs) ships, four ships, just build five more and you win the war. (laughs) (laughs) And, and
1: that's the thing, you know, it was, it was going to be what we think of nowadays, relatively small, but for the U S this was still a big thing. You know, we had just constructed the first six frigates of the U S Navy, not too long ago. And so this was a big deal, but yeah, Jefferson and his administration, they unanimously agreed. They were like, Yeah, we need to go ahead and send a squadron. They had decided on that. And so Smith gets to office on his first day and they're like, okay, well, that squadron that we need to go to the Mediterranean, make that
2: happen. We know we told you you're irrelevant, but it turns out (laughs) you're you're more relevant than we ever thought you'd be. So good luck. And we're not going to give you any more staff either. (laughs) Yeah, no more staff. You've got to work with what you got, but how are you with a how are you with an axe and saw? Can you go carve out (laughs) a couple trees for us? Build some canoes here or something because we got nothing, Smith. We got nothing. We're gonna put you to work in the navy yard.
1: (laughs) Bob is out today, so you've got to build that ship. We still need you to babysit that sailor's kid on (laughs) (laughs) exactly. And so you know, Smith went to work, and so the first squadron to set off for the Mediterranean under the command of Commodore Richard Dale consisted of three frigates and a schooner. Yeah. Four ships. That's it. (laughs) Four ships. (laughs) And the thing was, so this first squadron did actually have an early victory. So the USS Enterprise scored an early victory on August 1st, 1801 against the Tripolitan Corsair. But Smith, I mean, it, it was obvious. This was wholly inadequate. If, you really wanted to do a show of force right. against Tripoli. Right. They had so many more ships. And so he pushes forward. He's like, we need to go ahead and ramp up. Yeah. And it helped that on February 6th, 1802, as described by historian Frank Lambert, Congress gave Jefferson, quote, full authority to take whatever offensive as well as defensive measures necessary to defeat Tripoli and protect American interests. And so this allowed him to really think about expanding this yeah. naval force in the Mediterranean. But you also had a strong opponent of this in the cabinet in Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin. Okay. So Gallatin, and you know we've, we've talked about this in his episode, uh, which came out just before this one, Gallatin was all about austerity. Yeah. He was all about smaller government, shrinking the size of the national debt, shrinking the size of the national budget.
2: Well, shrinking debt is not a Jeffersonian principle, personally. Anyway,
1: <laughs> only in terms of the national yeah, yeah, debt. Not national his own debt. debt. My debt. Could you please take
2: it on? <laughs> can we get some more debt, please? That's Thank a, you. Is that a nice port wine I see there? Like, oh, can I have fifty cases, please? Charge yes. it. I promise I'll pay it back someday. Uh, exactly. A walking hypocrisy. I love them. I hate him. I love him. The Hamilton line, uh, what is it? Hate the sin, love the sinner, or something like that, you know? And it's just like, that's the most Jefferson way, best way to look at Jefferson ever. Hate the sin, love the sinner. He's fantastic, but he also just sucks half the
1: time. (laughs) Oh, yes. And, you know, that's one thing studying Jefferson for years. It's just like, you just, it's
2: such, He changed my podcasting career. I mean, not that I have to call it a career is kind of laughable, but he changed the trajectory of my podcast. His moment is where I went from being a whimsical storyteller to a real, I'm going to bring in my historian's craft in here because to do Jefferson right you have to. And then I realized to do all of them right, you have to. So my episodes went from 20 to 30 minutes in length and half the time to write them and record them to now they're an hour long in length and miserably long to record (laughs) (laughs) i i know the feeling all too well yes the solo episode is not so smooth as these you know when you're reading them and trying not to sound like a fool it's yes but to your credit though you do a very good job of your 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 any scripting you do, it comes across beautifully articulate. But I always stagger and stammer through my heart. Like, but I do drink on my show. Uh, so. Well, and and editing is our friend. It is. It is our friend. It's a great friend, but it's also a tedious friend. It's like a miserable, miserable friend that you have to hang out with. <laughs> I've never heard a podcaster yet say, oh, I really love the editing. <laughs> if I have to edit out one more breath, um, but I say to my co-host, I'm like, I know what your butt looks like. And they're like, that's weird. And I was like, no, 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 not the butt you're thinking of. But when you say, but I'm on the show, I know exactly what your breath looks like on an audio file. And it I hate that. <laughs> I'm like, I hate that. I know Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> We're getting away from Robert's. I, I it. apologize. I love no worries.
1: No worries. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. So in bringing it back to Robert Smith, you know, it, it, podcasting is the same thing. It's all about the details. Yeah. And so, nice you know, Robert Smith, there, has, Jerry. Nice <laughs> <thank job>. you. <laughs> you know, in crafting this strategy of trying to get this squadron together, supply and all of that, he realized, you know, this wasn't going to work. And so he had to advocate for that. But of course, this put him in Gallatin's crosshairs. And as we'll see, this is going to be a common theme throughout this episode. Mm. So in 1802, the original squadron was relieved by a new squadron led by Commodore Richard Morris. Yes. Now, this new squadron brought 180 guns on five frigates to the fight versus the 126 in Dale's squadron. However, more guns, more ships meant a higher cost to the U.S. government. And it was clear that. Dale could not maintain an effective blockade of Tripoli with the ships at his disposal. And there's this belief that this increased force could do so, but the situation was changing. So at this point, Morocco was starting to waver because they had had some ships that they were trying to send to Tripoli because... The U S Naval force was trying to do a blockade. They wouldn't let him through. And so naturally the Sultan of Morocco was not too happy about that and declared war on the U S right. Right. And this was a big problem because Morocco is of course at the strategic place of the entrance into the Mediterranean sea. And so quickly U S diplomats went to work. They managed to bring things back from the edge, get Morocco back in a peaceful state but they still had this war with Tripoli that yep. was going on. And Morris, the second Commodore with the second squadron, he proved even more ineffective than Dale. Though, to be fair, Tripoli had set about making favorable treaties with the major European powers, which would give them more ships and resources to use solely on the American squadron. Yes. Also, one of the things about the ships that were sent. So these were frigates. These were large ships. The conditions of Tripoli's harbor meant that the larger frigates were less effective in maintaining a blockade than more easily maneuverable, smaller ships. And so by the spring of 1803, it was clear a new strategy was needed. And Jefferson even brought the question before his cabinet, quote, shall we buy peace of Tripoli?
2: Surrender. That's that's surrender.
1: Exactly. And that's the thing. Like, this was two years after they said, we need a show of force. We need, we can't pay tribute. But the entire cabinet answered in the affirmative Yes, we do need to buy a piece of Tripoli. No way. Now, Smith, along with Secretary of State James Madison, were against the idea of paying tribute on a regular basis. They felt that the U.S. should send presents to Tripoli from time to time, but didn't want to get in the the regular payments, yeah, yeah, of yeah, yeah. but this was all moot because Tripoli wasn't coming to the negotiating team.
2: Right, it was yes, my way or no, my way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and the U.S. is like no way. But this is where they gets the war gets spicy, right? Those last years with oh, the Philadelphia yeah. and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's interesting just to put this in perspective for you know anybody who's not an american history historian like me uh, it, what's fun about learning this is robert smith's story is what you would typically hear as jefferson's story but you'd never hear yeah. robert smith's story and that's what's cool about this conversation right now is that it's, i mean i'm not saying i know anything about job, job i basically i'm filling in the gaps as we go along with, oh yeah robert smith oh yeah robert smith <laughs> i think is just to can i ask a pre uh foreshadowing yeah. question is his Absolutely. last year 1811? Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. I recall mm. Robert Smith a little bit. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. a bad year to leave office <laughs> or a great year to leave office, depending on. What- depending on your perspective. Yes. yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, and and that's the thing. So yes, this was the time, you know, we wanted to negotiate. Tripoli had no, they weren't going to negotiate. It was either you give us our demands yep. or we're going to continue this. And so it was realized, okay, we've just got to have a new strategy. We still need to pursue naval action against Tripoli. And it was clear that Morris was not the man to do so. So in June, Smith suspended the Commodore and launched a board of inquiry to investigate his conduct while commanding the squadron. And he was ultimately ruled as being, quote unquote, not competent to the command of a squadron.
2: So white gloves slap if I've ever heard one.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to imagine, he, he's ready for a duel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But meanwhile, Jefferson had requested and been granted permission by Congress to, quote, purchase or construct four small warships, not to exceed 16 guns each, and up to 15 gunboats to be armed, manned, and fitted out for the protection of the seamen and commerce of the United States in the Mediterranean. So now he's got the tools, he just needs the right commodore. And at just the right time, in came Edward Preble, and Preble is one of those characters. He's one of my favorite characters in the Barbary Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't mm-hmm. go into too much detail here,
2: but right, it is Robert Smith's show. But yes, yes. yeah, this is where it gets pretty dramatic. <laughs> you said it by way, a teacher no-no word. Uh, one word you never say in the classroom is semen. Uh, semen, <laughs> you are opening yourself up to uh, more attacks than uh, an American on a ship by Barbary pirates. Uh, Oh yes, and it's even for adults. Yes. It that- is a- <laughs> <laughs> clearly I just acted as juvenile as humanly possible. Jerry's trying to sit here and have a a uh, an adult uh, you know academic podcast. I'm like <laughs> semen, uh, but no, that is a Since I said I was speaking to my teacher uh, voice tonight, I will say. That's one of those words that anytime I accidentally say it from a quote or something, like, Like, Oh, man, I said it. Now that's all they're going to talk about all week is like, Well, remember, they had us in the Navy. You mean the seamen? And I'm like, no. Uh-huh. In the Navy. Yes,
0: yes. You can sail the seven
2: seas. You know, I never pass an opportunity to play a village people song in my classroom. I play. The first one is Go West. The second one is yes. uh, the YMCA with the progr- uh, the tenement movement and the settlement movement, settlement houses. And then I finally get to play big Navy policy in the Navy. Uh, I played, I think, during Teddy Roosevelt's um, Great White Fleet. And um, <laughs> finally, then uh, I forget what the last one is. I don't know. I find every excuse I can to play the village people. I'm like, they're just so fun. <laughs> I made my kids do the YMCA that day. They're like, why? 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 I was like, we'll oh, fi- <laughs> oh, find out when you learn what the acronym means, sir. Madam. (laughs) Anyway, as usual, I've gotten you off of Robert Smith and the (laughs) Barbary Wars, but what were pirates? No
1: (laughs) worries. So, so we're, we're at Edward Preble, And so Preble he had served as a Lieutenant in the revolutionary war, rose to the rank of captain. He was actually quote, the first American naval officer to display the flag east of the Cape of good hope. So he had this extensive career. And after receiving his commission from the administration, he led a seven-ship squadron with 1,000 folks under his command from his flagship, the USS Enterprise, across the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. He arrived in September 1803 and immediately went to work, aiming to put the pressure on Tripoli to force it to the negotiating table. But before he could do that, he had to deal with the embarrassing matter of a ship that you mentioned, the USS Philadelphia.
2: Yes, what a fun story.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. So in October, the Philadelphia had been in pursuit of a Tripolitan cruiser off the North African coast when it ran aground. Tripolitan gunboats pounced on the frigate, and the captain, William Bainbridge, was forced to surrender. All 307 crewmen on the ship were taken into Tripolitan custody, and Yusuf Karamandli demanded $1,000 per sailor as a ransom. And this was really big money at that time. Yes. Now, while diplomats would have to deal with securing the crewman's release, Prable's concern was the Philadelphia itself, which had been refloated and thus could potentially be put into service either for Tripoli or one of the other Barbary powers against the U.S. Right.
2: This is a modern warship. You know, this is America's top of the line at the time, which isn't top of the line by any means, but (laughs) it is the best we got, you know.
1: And that's the thing, like, you know, it's, this power and also this idea of national honor, you know, to have a Absolutely. ship, your own ship turned against you
2: would be insulting.
1: And so, Prable charged one of his subordinates, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, with leading a party aboard the USS Intrepid to destroy the Philadelphia. On February 16, 1804, they successfully carried out their mission, and the resulting explosion and burning of the ship was seen by many on the ground as well as abroad. As the beginning of a new phase of the war with the Americans finally starting to have the upper hand. You know, this is when things start turning around. The Americans are finally starting to take charge and get more ground here. And so in addition to putting in place the blockade of Tripoli's harbor that was actually effective, you know, now that he's got the smaller ships, in the spring of 1804, Preble sent back word to Washington. He came up with this plan to continue the blockade but also take the fight into Tripoli's fleet and link up with Karamanli's brother, who was offering to launch a land offensive to overthrow Yusuf if he could get American support. Again from Lambert, quote, So aggressive an attack would take far more assets than Prable currently had under his command, and he would have to watch his flanks against threats from Tunis and Morocco. Nonetheless, Jefferson approved the costly plan and dispatched a fourth squadron to the Mediterranean. By far the largest, this final squadron had the mix of vessels that Preble requested. Six frigates, six smaller ships, brigs and schooners, two bomb vessels, and ten gunboats. Costing $1.5 million, or three times that of the first squadron sent out in 1801, this formidable force reflected Jefferson's determination to end the war with a military victory. And though Prable, you know, of course, had proven himself in the field, he had proven himself to be an able commander, it also depended on Smith being back in Washington, and advocating, you know, continuing to advocate, we need a strong force, we need to agree to this plan and getting that buy in from Jefferson from other leaders. And also Smith had to work with the logistics. He had worked over the past few years to develop a system of naval agents that were dispatched to Livorno, mm-hmm. Livorno Malta, and Syracuse to make purchases on the ground for supplying the American squadron. Right. And especially with this larger squadron, that supply chain was more crucial than ever. He also remained in close contact with the commanders on the ground so that he had as accurate of information on hand as possible. And the fact that he was able to do this at a time when communication was just so slow, it was either this written report that was slowly brought back over the Atlantic or a person having to be physically transported over. It's pretty impressive what he was able to do. Again, he had to fight with Gallatin tooth and nail. You know, Gallatin is like, costs are going up. This is not the plan. And Gallatin, who had the closer relationship with Jefferson, he had worked with him for years, he was a leader in the party, he was by this point regularly sending disparaging commentary to the president about Smith. On january eighteenth, eighteen oh three, Gallatin wrote to Jefferson quote, that he could not discover any approach toward reform in that department, i. e. the Navy. And we know that at least on two occasions he directly encouraged the president to remove Smith from the post. But it speaks to Smith's dedication and talents that the war was a success. It ended with a treaty, which was concluded in June 1805. Right. That also secured the release of the crewmen from the Philadelphia.
2: And this is where we get into the Battle of Derna. which I, are you planning yeah. to talk about that at all? Or did you? So I was I wasn't going to
1: go into that. But if you want to mention well, it real quick.
2: I just think it's the only reason I always like to mention the Battle of Derna. Is because it's what William Eaton, I think, and the, the, the United States Navy and our, it's kind of like the Navy and the Army come together. And what we really get is a very important lyric to a very important song, right? Uh, what is the What are the lyrics uh, from, from the halls of Moctezuma? To the shores of Tripoli, the, the Marine Inn, mm-hmm. right? And that shores of Tripoli part is about the Battle of Derna, which brings about the end of these Barbary wars that we've been discussing. And I mean, that's hundreds of miles of march, I think, from what Egypt to Libya. And exactly. uh, these, these Marines, I mean, ironically, the Halls of Moctezuma is something that comes after the, the shores of Tripoli, but <laughs> uh, in the timeline, but the reality is. I mean, I'm not saying this is the birth of the U S the U S Marines by any means, but I don't know enough about the history there, but such a, such a cool moment to cite, Uh, you know, that we talk about the end and the the battle of Derna is that thing that brings about the demand of a treaty. Absolutely. Such a cool or so, so much to discuss. And I, I can tell you holding back, like it's just, It's a fun history topic that we just don't need. No show, unless you're discussing the Barbary Wars specifically, you don't have time to go into all these intricacies and everything.
1: And that's the thing, like there are so many interesting points in there. So I I do, you know, A, I talk about it more in the narrative series. So highly recommend folks checking out the Jefferson series for more. Mm Also, just read up on the Barbary Wars. It is a fascinating time in so many respects. There are so many different layers and levels and stories in there. And, you know, we it's outside of our scope today, but I can't recommend it enough.
2: And, I mean, it's one of the places where Oliver Hazard Perry rises to fame, too. I mean, you know, Love War of 1812 and Oliver Hazard Perry. There's a, there's a piece of the Barbary Wars is like a, the ultimate stepping stone for so many American military figures. Exactly. It's a very, very cool little war. Beautiful example of the Jeffersonian presidency uh, and the hypocrisy oh, yes. surrounding it. You know, you, you know, we will not get entangled in foreign affairs. We will not raise the navy. Hey, we need a navy to go get entangled in foreign affairs. It's really important. <laughs> uh, really only if
1: that. it's Tripoli.
2: <laughs> We're not going to do anything else, but this is really important. Anyway, so yes, exactly. so oh no,
1: and so that was that was the majority of. Jefferson's first term. And so it it finally ended, you know, as he was beginning the second term, but, you know, trying to get there was Smith's work during the majority of the first term. And so you get to the second term, things are finally winding down. And Smith is like, you know what, I'd like another post, because at that point, there was a vacancy. Yes. So Attorney General Levi Lincoln had announced his intentions of leaving his post at the end of the first term. And mm-hmm. Smith was like, hey, that actually sounds like a good gig. He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. And at that point, the Attorney General position was a part time position. It was basically just about advising the president right. and the administration on legal matters, representing the federal government before the Supreme Court. And also there was an unofficial, you know, acting as an advisor in general, but it was still something And as we saw in Levi Lincoln's episode, it was something that you could do from home. You could, right. you know, maybe go to DC a couple of times a year, but that was it. And so to Smith, who had been managing this department and all of these logistics for a few years, you can see why he was like, yeah, that sounds like the better gig for me. But the problem was, it got back to the original problem that Jefferson had at the beginning of the first term, trying to find somebody to be Secretary of the Navy. And so he finally agreed to Smith. There were a couple of other names thrown out, but he was like, okay, Smith, you can have the post if you can help me find somebody for Navy. And the administration thought it was on something with Representative Jacob Crowninshield, who was a Democratic republican from Massachusetts. Crown and Shield had originally declined the offer, but he was finally talked into it. But then he went back home and after talking with his wife and family, he wrote Jefferson and was like, "Uh, thanks, but no thanks. I really, I I think I'm going to pass on this one. The problem was, so, you know, he had already submitted Crown and Shield as Secretary of the Navy. He had submitted Smith's name as Attorney General. The Senate had agreed, but he couldn't relinquish Smith to be attorney general without having somebody in place at Navy. And so Jefferson finally was like, you know what? It's going to be easier to find an attorney general, Smith. You stay where you're at. And he found uh, John Breckinridge, who became the next attorney general. And so that's why whenever you said earlier, was he attorney general? Yes-ish. Yes. yes,
2: Like, what, like <laughs> five or six months. Yes. One of those dual positions, but that's funny. I never exactly. really thought about yes. Cause he stays <laughs> secretary of the Navy. And then I think I remember what he, what, what he becomes next. Oh yes. And we are not far from that because,
1: and that's the thing. So with the triple E situation settled, that did free things up for Smith a bit. He was able to start thinking of other matters.
2: Babysitting that sailor's kid on
1: Tuesday, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he he was able he was able to expand to Wednesdays at that point. Yeah, yeah there
2: you go. Pick <laughs> up a side job.
1: <laughs> but first of all, he advocated within the administration to take a more aggressive stance towards Spain in order to secure American control of the Floridas. Hmm. And this is the thing, right, at at this point, the Louisiana Purchase had been done. The administration was like, oh, well, that includes West Florida, right? Right? No. No, no it didn't. No. And so, again, kind of like with the situation with Tripoli, Smith was like, we need to exert a strong influence right. in terms of naval power in the area, and that can help us to secure the Floridas. Right. Now, at this point, Jefferson falls back into more of his traditional stance and it's like, you know what, maybe we do need a smaller navy. Maybe Gallatin is right. right. We can build a few more gunships, but that's really all we need. Smith was also concerned because with the continuation of the state of war between Britain and France, and so this was the Napoleonic Wars, right. the US was starting to see more war vessels from each nation in U.S. waters. And Smith was having to report You know, with this, he didn't have the financial resources necessary to really strategically dispatch gunboats to key defensive locations, including but not limited to the strategic point of New Orleans. And if we lost New Orleans, all the Louisiana purchase.
2: That is all we went to the table wanting New Orleans and we got all of this mess of
1: Louisiana. Exactly. But all of that would be gone if we lost New Orleans and potentially everything west of the Appalachian. So this was this was a bad situation. Then you have the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, which, you know, we talked about in the James Madison episodes of this series. But basically on June 22nd, 1807, a British ship ordered an American naval vessel to allow it to be boarded off the coast of the U.S., in order to impress sailors into the British service, and so this was a big national affront. This was the first time that the British had actually boarded a U.S. naval vessel. They had boarded, you know, merchant ships, but not an actual ship of the U.S. Navy. And so Smith, you know, there was a big public outcry. Smith was in support of calling Congress back in session immediately. Jefferson, however, he realized that if he called Congress back, we were probably going to end up in war. And so he was like, let's go ahead and let things simmer for a bit. We'll do some things. We'll show that we are active, but we don't need Congress back just yet. Instead, him and Secretary of State Madison came up with another idea, the Embargo Act. Right. The Argrame
2: (laughs) Do you know, no do you, do you know the, the cartoon with the turtle? The, the oh, monster? yes. Yeah, yes yeah, yeah. And so,
1: you know, we talked about that more in Madison's episode, but basically this was that the U.S. would cut off all American commerce with foreign powers. And as the administration worked on that, pushing through the Embargo Act, they learned that the British were sending a special envoy to negotiate. So on January 13th, 1808, George Rose arrived in Washington, D.C. to begin talks with the U.S. government. Unfortunately, Rose's instructions expressly forbid him to discuss impressment, which was basically the only thing thing that the Americans wanted to talk about. So as it quickly became clear that official negotiations were at a standstill, the Jefferson administration brought someone else into the mix to have some unofficial discussions with Rose. And this was none other than Robert Smith. So Smith made contact with Rose numerous times, but his efforts were fruitless. And ultimately, on February 16th, talks came to an end and the Embargo Act went into place. And this put Smith in an awkward position because naval vessels were going to have to be used to enforce the Embargo Act. He actually found an unlikely partner in this because Albert Gallatin was not a fan of the Embargo Act either. This was, again, completely against his fiscal policy. And so the two people who were most heavily involved in enforcing the Embargo Act were the two people who were most adamantly against it.
2: Secretary of State and Secretary of Navy, Yeah. Wow. Wow.
1: Exactly. Irony. And so you have this brief time and and it does appear that they actually worked well together during this time. They did what they had to,
2: but they're also like, can we
1: repeal this as soon as possible? Please, 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 please,
2: please, please. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, most, a lot of America felt that way too. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. It only took about a
1: year and Congress at the end of Jefferson's presidency was like, we're repealing the embargo act. They put in the Non-Intercourse Act, which would prove to be ineffective. But you know, they they were like, "We need something, but just not the Embargo Act." Now, though, both Smith and Gallatin would continue to serve in the incoming administration. Only one of them would serve in a new post, and it was the post that both wanted.
2: Ah, yes, this is where Sm- I know what happens now. Smith, yeah, becomes oh, yes. okay, okay, yes, yes, oh, stepping on your
1: because. No worries. Uh, and, and that's the thing. So we covered this in Gallatin's episode. So Gallatin wanted to move over to the State Department. And Madison, and he's like, great. I would love you as my successor at State. The only problem was, at this point, Gallatin had made such enemies of the Smiths, you know, not just Robert Smith, mm-hmm. but his brother, the powerful leader right. in the Senate, Senator Samuel Smith, that basically... Samuel Smith was like, there is no way this guy is getting in. Yeah. And the thing was like, you know, Madison was like, I really want this, but I can't do it without Democratic Republican support because the Federalists are naturally going to oppose Gallatin as well. So he came up with a plan. He was like, well, maybe we'll put Robert Smith at Treasury and then Gallatin will be. Secretary of State. So Treasury Department, again, one of the more prominent positions, definitely much more prominent than Secretary of the Navy. So he was like, you know, maybe this will placate them. But Gallatin learned of the scheme and he was like, there is no way I'm turning over the Treasury Department to Robert Smith. He will completely decimate all of my plans. Not going to happen. Right. So if he couldn't get Gallatin to the State Department, Madison had to think up another plan. He still needed that Smith support. He knew that Samuel Smith was a prominent member in the Senate. And at that point, the Senate was small. I think it was like 30 something people
2: were on the verge of of war at this point. So the Senate's very important.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so he was like, "You know what? Let's just put Robert Smith as Secretary of State." Yeah. And the thing is, and'll we'll, we'll, we can talk a bit more about this when we get to our final evaluation, but you know later accounts of Paynenant Smith as being utterly unfit for the office, but as we've already seen, he's not only been in charge of this massive bureaucracy and a really challenging position. But he's also been engaged in unofficial diplomatic overtures and negotiations, he's virtually so, a war too. You know, he's, yeah. he's got the
2: experience he needs to be Secretary of State in theory. Exactly. I mean, even in the Navy Department,
1: you know, trying to run a war that's in the Mediterranean. Of course, he had right. to be familiar with foreign affairs. Right, right. So you know, this is a guy who's capable. Thus, on March 4th, 1809, Smith discharged his responsibilities at the Navy Department and two days later, on March 6th, assumed office as the sixth U.S. Secretary of State. Now, as noted by Armstrong, quote, State Department records, in addition to other substantiating evidence, confirm that Smith played an active role in the State Department. Now, while we think of the State Department as being all about foreign relations, at the time, it was tasked with handling all correspondence with American diplomats abroad as well as foreign ministers in the U.S., issuing passports, sending reports to Congress, supervising the Patent Office and the Census, facilitating the printing and distribution of laws and the preservation of public papers and other domestic administrative functions. And one responsibility in particular that I want to note was that the State Department was also the one that handled all correspondence with judicial officers, U.S. District Attorneys, and U.S. Marshals. And this was an office that had, quote, one chief clerk, seven clerks, and a messenger. And so, again, not a big staff. The secretary is going to have a lot of work to do. That's just, That's Smith's way, though. You know? <laughs> and he's already proven himself yeah. in that. But the problem is, he's also got... Albert Gallatin to deal with because Gallatin is still fuming about not being able to become Secretary of State. And Gallatin made plans to take his revenge. So with Senator Samuel Smith's term drawing to a close and his reelection being in doubt in the spring of 1809 because the Federalists had regained control of the Maryland House of Delegates, Gallatin saw an opening. Through proxies on the ground, Gallatin launched charges of corruption, claiming that Robert Smith, as Secretary of the Navy, had given his brother's mercantile house favorable treatment in Navy supply contracts and that Samuel's firm had pocketed the money without providing the supplies ordered.
2: Ooh, that's not good. Yeah. (laughs) Scandalous. No,
1: this this was a big scandal. And, of course, there would be congressional investigations. There would be lots of talk about this in the press. Ultimately, the Smiths were exonerated. There was no proof. And they were able to trace back where all this came from. So now the Smith faction and Gallatin are tearing the Democratic Republican Party in tatters. They are tearing it at the seams. But meanwhile, as you noted, the situation with Great Britain was only going from bad to worse. There was some initial hope in the spring of 1809 because Madison and Smith had been able to negotiate a favorable peace treaty with British minister to the U.S., David Erskine, that would restore trade between the U.S. and Great Britain and de-escalate the growing tensions. However, by late July, they learned that Erskine, in these negotiations, had acted against the instructions of his government, and thus the agreement that they had reached was being repudiated by the British government. So this meant that Madison had to reverse course about making such a public to-do about restoring trade relations between the two nations, and instead he had to reimpose non-intercourse between the U.S. and Great Britain. Even worse, they learned that the new envoy that was being sent from London to negotiate was a man named Francis James Jackson. And Jackson was notorious. He was a very aggressive diplomat. Um, If you ever get the chance to read up on him, he was called Copenhagen Jackson because he basically went to Copenhagen and said, I'm going to take the Danish fleet. Thank you very much. And when they refused, he went back to the British ship that he sailed in on and watched as they bombarded and destroyed half of Copenhagen.
2: Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Good reason for the nickname. Yeah.
1: (laughs) This was the guy who was coming and they knew he was going to be inflexible. Negotiations began on October 4th, 1809, and it only took five days before negotiations became so contentious that Madison formally requested for all communication to be in writing moving forward.
2: Tedious, but necessary, I guess.
1: Yes. and, And that's the thing, like you end up. So this period, the rest of October and into November, You have these letters going back and forth from Smith and Jackson, and it gets contentious. It gets heated. And by the end of November, Smith wrote to U.S. Minister to Britain, William Pinckney, that the administration was formally requesting that Jackson be recalled from his diplomatic post. Now, as we were talking before, you know, those diplomatic posts being, you know, a stepping stone to something else, Pinckney will get his own episode of the special series. So stay tuned for that. For
2: sure. He'd have to. Oh,
1: yes. And so Pinckney tried to manage the situation in London for the next year. But on November 15th, 1810, Smith sent Pinckney orders to be recalled to the United States as the British had retaliated in the back and forth by refusing to send a new minister to replace Jackson and instead would have a lower functionary as their diplomatic representative in the U.S. And this was a rebuke. It was seen as. You know, you're not important enough for a full minister. And so the US is like, Pinkney, come home. They want to be like that. We can play that game.
2: Okay, fine. Bye. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and meanwhile, relations with France weren't going well either. So Napoleon had imposed his continental system yep. to strictly regulate trade going in and out of Europe, put a blockade around Britain. He was really trying to starve the british out make sure that they can't get goods that they need it in order to prosecute the war and the problem was the u.s was caught in the crosshairs of this you know the u.s the point was we're neutral we can trade with anybody and napoleon was like
2: well, no, you, no no you can't no you can't <laughs> you, you, you can't do that sorry no
1: but at this point it was seen as We probably had a better shot of negotiating with Napoleon than we did with the British. And so in 1810, you see this new bill, which was dubbed Macon's Bill No. 2, which was a a replacement to the Non-Intercourse Act. And this would lift the embargoes against trade with Britain and France. But the carrot that was dangled was if either nation should come to terms with the U.S., then the US would impose non-intercourse on the other nation. So they would put an embargo on the other nation, right. denying them right. trade while still trading. So it would give whatever nation came to the table first an advantage. Right. Okay. And so this bill was signed on May first, eighteen ten. Word of it was sent to US Minister to France, John Armstrong Jr., who will also get his own episode in the special there we series. Go. <laughs> yet another one. And so the French foreign minister, who was the Duke de Cador, wrote to Armstrong on August 5th, 1810, that Napoleon would be willing to revoke his decrees and come to terms with the Americans in light of this new bill. So since the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, we had been in this back and forth with France, with Napoleon, Oh, yeah, we may consider that, but let's keep on talking about it. And we would just go around in circles. And so this was the first sign of potential progress. But Armstrong, this wasn't his first rodeo. He knew how the French were. And he was like, "Okay, you say you're going to do this. Let's go ahead and get something in writing and then we'll talk. What are you really saying? But he did have to send word of the Cador letter back to Washington, but he went ahead and warned the administration. He was like, I wouldn't act on this just yet. Let me see if I can get more details. But because communications were so, it took so long to get communications back and forth. And there had been a mention of the decrees, the French decrees being repealed by November 1st, president Madison felt that he needed to go ahead and act. And so on November 2nd, 1810, Madison proclaimed that as France had presumably by that point modified their decrees, non-intercourse would be put back into effect against Britain unless the British took similar action. But unbeknownst to Madison and Smith in Washington, Napoleon had no intention of revoking his previous decrees and instead was implementing more restrictions as well as selling off American vessels and cargoes that had been confiscated under the previous decrees, in order to pay for his constant war expenditures. So this was just a really bad situation. Meanwhile, a new French minister to the U.S. arrived in February 1811, and Smith used the opportunity to push for details as to where American commerce stood in the face of French laws and policy. However, this was done against Madison's wishes because Madison was more concerned about other matters and he didn't want to antagonize the French. He's like, we've got enough battles that we're fighting right now. We need to just focus in on those. Let's just leave that be. And so this was just a really bad situation. And Madison just ended up, he was like, okay, we're just going to pretend that we didn't hear that the French didn't repeal their decrees. Right. And we'll just keep on this line. Right. Smart. <laughs> Very and this is this is one of those moments that you're just like, Madison, what are you thinking? <laughs> but meanwhile, we get to that year, 1811, and the feud between the Gallatins and the Smiths flared up once more. And this had to do with, and we talked more about this in the Gallatin episodes, the Bank of the United States was up for recharter. Oh, yeah. And Senator Samuel Smith opposed it. He knew that Gallatin was going around, he was advocating for it, he was lobbying for it, and he was like, we're going to be against this bank. And so on February 20th, 1811, the Senate ended up in a tie over recharter, and Vice President George Clinton cast the tie-breaking vote against recharter, thus killing the bank. And with this, I mean, this was a public defeat. Everybody knew Gallatin was pushing for the bank's recharter. And so Gallatin at this point is like, my credibility is shot. How can I proceed in this office? And so on March 4th, he submitted his resignation to the president. In his letter, Gallatin asserted that the president administration was, quote, defective and the effects already sensibly felt become every day more extensive and fatal. Such a state of things cannot last. A radical remedy had become... Absolutely necessary. Now, Gallatin knew that Madison saw him as a much more trusted advisor than Robert Smith. And it's likely, you know, he had already advocated to Jefferson to remove Smith back in those days. So we can safely assume that this discussion had happened between Madison and Gallatin as well. Having to choose between losing his trusted right hand person or exploring quote unquote, a radical remedy, President Madison chose the latter. And so you have on March 20th, 1811, Madison summoned Smith to the president's house for a meeting. Before we get to the details of this, I do want to note that we only have one source for this meeting, which is from Madison. Oh. And it's a memorandum that he drew up two weeks after the fact. That's pretty so
2: interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so let's just go ahead and take a grain of salt with all this. So, Madison detailed that he confronted Smith for his quote, agreeing to cabinet decisions while criticizing them outside of the cabinet. So, he was saying, you know, once we're in discussions, you're saying, oh, this is great. And then he's going out and, did you hear what the administration's doing? Oh my gosh. And Smith, of course, denied this. Madison further accused him of acting in a quote, counteracting nature, that it was generally believed that he was in an unfriendly disposition personally. And officially, Madison even accused Smith of crafting quote-unquote crude and inadequate correspondence as Secretary of State and asserting that he had rewritten part of it before sending it out. Though Smith attempted to defend himself, Madison ultimately arrived at what he saw as the solution. Smith had to leave the administration. Now, Madison was willing to offer him a position as a diplomat to a foreign capital Because he knew that would be kind of a a face-saving measure. You know, you're not. Here you go. We're not kicking you out. We're kicking you over.
2: Into something else. Yeah.
1: Now, he had a specific post in mind, the post of U.S. Minister to Russia, because the current occupant of that post, John Quincy Adams, who will also get his own episode of the series, was expected to be on his way back as he was expected to fill a vacancy in the Supreme Court. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that did okay okay and there's a whole story behind that i don't know the story behind that but i know that i know the end of the story behind that because i know what happens. yeah i know where he ends up spoiler happen, alert happen. it didn't happen. It happen. <laughs> happen something happens but not that not that and kind of thank god it did i mean he was a pretty effective at what he did i mean he was you talk about James Monroe, it's Quincy Adams, but a lot of the time. So.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that that's going to be an interesting episode.
2: That's going to be a big part of your show. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. But, you know, U.S. Minister to Russia, Smith is like,
2: eh, I'm, not,
1: so, I'm not feeling that. How about U.S. Minister to Britain? And at this point, Madison was considering refilling that post. A new British minister was either being sent over or was on the way. They knew that they were coming back to the table. So it was like, okay, let's send another another minister there. But Madison already had somebody in mind and it definitely was not Robert Smith.
2: No. Yeah.
1: And he made it clear that the posting to St. Petersburg, it was either that or nothing. According to Madison, Smith agreed. However, as word got out in print that Smith was going to leave the cabinet for the post in Russia and Smith had a time to reflect and seek the advice of his brother and other trusted confidants, Robert decided that he would not accept that offer. And he even went so far as to not attend a dinner that was supposed to be given in his honor. Oh
2: my.
1: Yeah, this is, this is getting pretty bitter. Yeah. And on April 1st, the day that they had agreed to that Robert would officially leave his post at the State Department, President Madison waited and waited, but Smith didn't arrive as was expected to go ahead and make the matter official. Thus, the president sent word to the outgoing secretary. Smith arrived and he's like, oh, I was going to get around to getting here at some point. I was on my way. And Smith informed the president that he was declining his offer to be appointed U.S. Minister to Russia and simply made his farewell leaving his post as secretary of state on that date. And so Smith returned to Baltimore after leaving office and was received by well wishers. As noted by Armstrong, he quote, seems to have taken satisfaction in referring to the enfeebled mind of our panic-stricken president. Wow. Yeah. It's it's getting He did. Yeah.
2: And yet no one knows who Robert Smith is.
1: <laughs> and we'll get to that reason in just a second. Because that's the thing. Like, so at the beginning of this, and as word started getting out that Smith had been kind of forced out, he started to find some supporters, um, including Philadelphia newspaper editor William Duane, who less than a week after Smith's leaving office, began directly attacking Madison in print and accusing him of wishing quote. To banish Mr. Smith to Siberia. Oof. And the Smiths were, of course, you know, they had both been mistreated by the administration. They were both bitter. And Robert decided to take action. In late June 1811, a new publication began circulating in newspapers across the country titled, quote, Robert Smith's Address to the People of the United States. Now, Naturally, as expected, Smith used this opportunity to present himself in the best light and attack the president as being blinded in his approach to foreign affairs by his pro-French bias. Thinking of his future, Smith thought that this would be the rallying call for his supporters. And indeed, Madison and former President Jefferson were worried that this attempt would succeed. They actually had a correspondence back and forth about, you know, Oh, what does this really mean? Should we be concerned? I don't think they
2: had much to worry about in the end.
1: (laughs) And that's the thing, you know, Madison was already hearing rumors that Smith intended to stand against him in the 1812 presidential election. But the thing was, they may have been concerned. Senator Samuel Smith was concerned the other way. Uh, He advised his brother against this. He was like, this is not the time to do this. Oh, yeah. He knew that though Madison's standing in the party was weak, a direct attack on him at this juncture would rally the party around the president and that an insurgent campaign would be unsuccessful. Yeah. Samuel was right. The administration's response came from Joel Barlow, who Madison had recently nominated as U.S. minister to France. And this was called a review, quote, review of Robert Smith's address. It was published in four installments in the pro-administration National Intelligencer and attacked Smith for having a, quote, want of capacity and want of integrity. Now, it was bad enough. And then Smith took the bait and he responded himself in what was described as, quote, a stinging rebuttal. As other politicians have found over the years, engaging in this back and forth only dragged Smith yeah. down. Yeah. By the end of the year, he was yesterday's news, and he would never hold national office again, though he would be involved in various commercial and community ventures. Smith became president of the Universal Life Insurance Company shortly after he returned home to Baltimore. In 1813, Smith became president of an auxiliary chapter of the American Bible Society and was elected to the Board of Regents for the University of Maryland. With the latter organization, Smith was soon chosen as provost for the university and served in that capacity until 1815. In 1818, Smith was chosen as president of the Maryland Agricultural Society. And throughout his post-cabinet career, Smith was active in his church, the First Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, and was noted as having deep philosophical and doctrinal conversations with the pastor of the church. Now, Robert's brother, Samuel, would continue to serve in Congress, sometimes in the Senate, sometimes in the House, for the next 22 years before returning to Baltimore to serve as mayor prior to his death in 1839. And as you mentioned earlier, Zach, after a long and eventful life, Robert Smith passed away on November 26, 1842, at the age of 85. Oh, yeah. He was actually the last living elector who had voted in the first presidential election. no, no way. Yeah.
2: Neat, fun fact.
1: That connection to Washington. Yeah. And he was buried at Westminster Burying Ground in a tomb with his wife and uncle. Now, at this point, I typically talk about the physical legacy, you know, things named after the cabinet member. The only item that I have for the physical legacy he left was the USS Robert Smith, which was a Clemson class destroyer that was commissioned in March 1921 that was named in his honor. The ship served in the Pacific fleet for a few years before being decommissioned in March 1930, nearly nine years to the day it was commissioned. And that is the life and career of Robert
2: Smith. And limited legacy. (laughs) (laughs) What are your first thoughts? Such an interesting story. I mean, the Barbary Wars, the fact that, I, I, I mean, as far as life and career goes, we mentioned legacy there. I mean the second secretary of the Navy. Yeah. He is a pioneering force in this. And really he's a forced working his way through the fog of what this position even looks like. And the fog of war. It's interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people come to your show and discuss these cabinet members of people they discuss on their shows. It's interesting to see Jefferson's legacy is actually equally someone else's multiple else's Madison's legacy. Um, being out before the war of eighteen twelve fully fueled up though that probably that could it could have made or break made or broke him you you know that's a yeah that's a turning point so like I think we mentioned that earlier He either got out at the right time or the worst time you know Uh so but I mean being kind of forced out ish being kind of persuaded out being kind of ousted and making that choice is he going to be a McClellan esque candidate you know and run against an incumbent. Champion of their cause, it's it's dangerous. I, I mean, yeah. certainly a more intriguing story than I would have thought when you said we're covering someone named Robert Smith, who I ever never really gave a second thought to, and now had to give a second thought to very quickly. But I had seen before; it's, it's, it was
1: very interesting. Well, and and I will say for anybody who goes to Wikipedia and looks up Robert Smith, so first of all, put in Robert Smith cabinet member. Yeah that page is
2: very small. Oh, it's going to be, yeah, that's going to be a, (laughs) that's going to be a, you might as well just look at the, uh, the dates of his time in office because you're probably not going to find anything other than two paragraphs or something. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Exactly. But you know, you start to explore and that's the thing, you know, he only has at least that I found one biography, but there's a lot there there's so much that was going on and that he was a part of. And so I think this, this gets us to, our first category. So our first category is the whole picture. And this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. And we can each award up to 10 points maximum. So we've already started talking about, you know, that his tenure as Secretary of the Navy, his tenure as Secretary of State. So what do you think about his overall career and character? Yeah.
2: I'm going to rank him pretty high between like seven and eight, maybe eight and nine. Mm. The things when when he was actually in his career, he did the, he did the job effectively. I think, um, mm-hmm. sometimes politicking gets the better of actual merit. And it seems like that's what started to happen towards the end of his career, either by his own demise or others. Um, that being said, I, I can't get away from that pioneering effort. He's, He's a legacy worth noting that probably doesn't get noted enough. So I'm going to say he was pretty successful. When when I hear your category, I think, what was his job? Did he do his job effectively? The answer is mostly yes, I would say. Yeah. And with plenty of rivals in his way. So I'm going to say eight.
1: Well, and that's the thing. I think we do have to go high here, and especially... You know, this was a meteoric rise, you know, at at that point, he was still very early in his career when he joined the cabinet, but you have him, you know, working his way up and then he gets this cabinet career and is involved in so many things. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about his, his time in the cabinet in a minute with the next category. But, you know, this is, this is a big deal. You know, this is a good you know, when, when you're talking about somebody's career, you know, most folks don't get higher than Secretary of State. Right. He actually got right.
2: there. I was just telling my kids the other day, it's it's probably the second most powerful person in the country. You know? Yeah. So. Exactly.
1: And, and that's the thing. So, you know, he gets to this place of prominence. He has a big fall. But then you see at the end of his life, he's still involved in. Organizations, he's still involved in, you know, educational pursuits, in religious pursuits. He's still very active, and so you know, this is this is somebody. Whenever you're thinking of the whole picture, I mean, this is it's a, a big, pretty it's a big deal, good life. Yeah. So I'm going to go a little lower. I'm I'm going to go with a seven, but I think you know that he definitely he gets high marks. Yeah, here. I think so. Yeah. So then we are going to focus in on that time in the cabinet. So this is our go-getter round. This round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And again, just like with the last round, we can award up to 10 points maximum.
2: That's tricky for me. I'm going to say... I'm going to say seven, but not begrudgingly. As U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Mm -hmm. nine as u.s secretary of state five so seven (laughs) that's where i'm at well
1: and i think you get to a good point zach i think that time as secretary of the navy and especially if you had and and we're going to talk about some completely ineffectual secretaries of the navy yeah i mean there there were some folks that Just end up, they get the position because nobody else wanted it. They had no experience with the Navy, with maritime matters, anything. Theodore Roosevelt. uh, (laughs) Getting
2: assistant (laughs) assistant secretary of the Navy. and The secretary of the Navy did nothing. Yeah, but yes.
1: (laughs) But, you know, here we've got somebody. And especially coming in and this war is already in place. They've already made their decision. They're like, just make it happen. And he did. Yeah,
2: he did. And that's the thing. And he made The impossible out of nothing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this really could have gone very badly with somebody who was ineffective. And if the Barbary War had gone poorly or or the Tripolitan War gone poorly, this would have been a big to do. It would have been a big black mark against the administration. And he was integral in making that happen. And at the same time, fighting with a fellow cabinet member who was doing everything he could to undermine him. And he ended up coming out on top. So I think
2: there's something to the obstacle there. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I'm I'm with you with that seven. It's largely based on his time as secretary of the Navy, but that was an important thing. But you know, once he gets to secretary of state and again, it also, one of the things to emphasize, you know, in later accounts and because Madison ended up coming out on top yeah. because Madison was able to turn the tide when reelection Madison and Gallatin were really the ones, you know, to the victors go the spoils. Right. They were the ones who were able to dictate the narrative of this time in the cabinet and Robert Smith's time in the cabinet as secretary of state. But the evidence just really seems to be that he was effective. He was doing what he needed to, he just could not get the support from the president, from his colleagues. Yep. He just, it was just a bad situation. But I think a seven for his impact as a cabinet member is, is a good place Seems to be. Seems
2: beautifully rational to me. Uh-
1: <laughs> so right now he is at 29 points. Okay. But now we've got to discuss the hot seat round. Okay. This round looks at any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this doesn't have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And we can take away up to 10 points maximum. So we can do negative 10 points maximum
2: each. Huh? So I, oh, so this is similar to my POS curve, y- y- you know, except for sometimes The POS curve doesn't have a lot of points to take away. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that when this is looking at his career as a whole, Mm -hmm. kind of like going back to that first question a little bit and sort of where do the failings meet the successes? And it's very easy Mm -hmm. to say, well, he did a lot of good as Secretary of the Navy, but ultimately he floundered and fell from nothing to nothingness, at least in terms Mm -hmm. of a federal international level, uh, trying and failing to get a bid for the presidency and undermine the incumbent Mm. and the party and being a divisive force. Almost like he, he started as a humble figure and became this bigger, larger than life figure in his own mind. So I'm going to, I'm going to deduct four points, I think. Right. That's what I'm supposed to do is is to deduct. Yes. It's kind of like his, his shortcoming points. I'm going to, I'm going to deduct points there points.
1: I think I'm going to match you there, and one thing I will note here: so, you know, Robert Smith was from Maryland. Maryland was a slave state. I wasn't able to find a yes or no as to whether he did enslave individuals. It's
2: quite possible that he did, even ones that didn't have enslaved Africans or you know participate directly in slavery. Sometimes participated in the the slave trade. You know, we look at exactly. Hamilton even got slammed for for that in recent research um the livingstons you know participating in the the Mm. trade the north is either way participating directly or indirectly complicitness is always almost always there um exactly yeah
1: and so we we don't necessarily you know can't really say for certain that's probably in the mix but really the disgrace that we know of that we can really speak to is exactly what you got to, you know, as we get to this period as secretary of state and granted, you know, Gallatin has his own role to play in this. You know, he, he definitely, he was not a a passive person in this. He was very active and actively attacking the Smiths, but they were doing the same and it's as close as, Samuel and Robert were you have to imagine that there was some colluding in that. Right. Well, you know, why don't you, why don't you oppose this in in the, in the Senate and all that, but especially as you get towards the end and it just gets really right. dirty. And when you've got an outgoing cabinet member actively attacking the president of his own party, and dragging this through the mud, you've got to give him right. th- this is some disgrace. And so I'm going to match your minus four. And so we're going to take away eight points. That leaves him at 21 points. And so now we get to the tenure of office. And so this is the entire time that the cabinet member served in a full time capacity. Now, one thing to note here, even though we had that time that he was kind of sort of attorney general. Yeah. Because he was still Secretary of the the Navy, that doesn't really count. Um, We're just going to, you know, he was just in the cabinet at that point. But with that, the dates that we have for Robert Smith. So he began as Secretary of the Navy on July 27th, 1801. He left that office on March 4th, 1809. Began as Secretary of State on March 6th, 1809, and left on April 4th, 1811. And so that is roughly, we round, that's roughly 10 years. And so he gets 10 points oh, here. Okay. And now we get to our bonus points. He has a chance of picking up a few more points. So first of all, if a cabinet member has served in more than one full-time cabinet position, that's, he gets a bonus point. Two and and half. And
2: That's two and a half. So he gets
1: that. He gets one bonus point because he served in a full-time cabinet position in more than one presidential administration. And even though Robert Smith would really have liked to have gotten this bonus point, he does not earn it because he did not become president. Okay. But he did pick up two bonus points. And so that leaves him with the grand total of 33 points. Okay. But we have one more question to ask. So, Zach, after all I've shared about Robert Smith's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the Cabinet All-Stars?
2: You know, if he was number 10, 11, 30, even 5 in the Secretary of the Navy, had he not... Had to deal with a war and been on the the cusp of another war that cost us our first White House. I would say no, but I think he deserves, and I'm sure your biography that you noted, the sole biography on him, he deserves more of a seat in this little pantheon that you're creating of, of cabinet members than maybe he gets than maybe most people would give him the barbary hmm. wars were no small potatoes it was truthfully america's first truly declared war quasi war me you know uh this is it we are at war with the foreign power and i mean you've done a great job of noting the simple fact that Tripoli Pirates might not sound like a big deal, but they got a lot of boats and a lot of skill, and it's yeah. their home turf, and they are operating under different rules and regulations than any other navy in the world. This isn't fighting Britain or France. This is fighting pseudo piracy. It is. It has. It, listening to your tale of Robert Smith has made me reevaluate the Jefferson presidency for for who deserves the credit. Now, obviously, Jefferson gets the credit for being the guy at the top. Madison gets you know points of it as well, but. Robert Smith deserves some of that, some of that there too. You know, I went through the same thing when I was first encountering Gouverneur Morris, uh, you know, and how much these people deserve. James Wilson, I believe, is another one on my list of the founding fathers who I want to cover. And there's just people who get lumped into other people's credits that don't. Mm-hmm. Don't get recognized, and it's it's. I think that's where Robert. I think that's where Robert Smith kind of lies, because I know I spent <laughs> some time with Barbary Wars on my Jefferson episode, and I didn't mention Robert Smith once. Nor nor would I. I don't. I'm not judging myself for that. But mm-hmm. but I I think as the second secretary of the Navy, a position that by the way was supposed to die when it was at its second point, he did the opposite of that. I, I give him credit for that. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put him in a. A unique, if not, and I mean, your pantheon currently is, you know, where it's at. But as time goes on, maybe that might be, need to be reevaluated. But right now, where we're at with our our early precedents in the repu- Republic, I think he deserves a good bit of a good bit of credit as a cabinet cabinet member, especially a, a loyal cabinet member during the Jefferson administration.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I agree with you, and and so you're you're saying yes, yes.
2: I do. I believe so. Do you agree?
1: I agree. And that was, uh, this has been an episode that I have been so excited about doing for so long. And to your point, that's been one of the guiding principles of presidencies. You know, so many works are devoted to the president. Yes, However, the president couldn't have been the president couldn't have achieved what they achieved in their administrations without all of these other people. Right. And Robert Smith is one of those folks who just has not gotten really much of any credit for this because of how things ended up with his tenure sure. as secretary of state, Madison and Gallatin were able to kind of write the narrative of this time. Right. And for so long, he's just been viewed as this ineffective person right. And yes, Tom Armstrong in his biography of Robert Smith and, you know, and, and it made sense. He, he even asked the question, he's like, if all these folks thought that Robert Smith was a poor choice as secretary of state, that he was completely ineffectual at that point, what does that say about Madison? Yeah. Choosing yeah. this guy who he knew would screw up at the State Department, this important post in the cabinet. Right, right. Would he really put somebody who he thought was no. this
2: bumbling buffoon? No. No. He had proven himself. We've we've discussed and you've proven. that He's yeah. proven himself as Secretary of the Navy. He deserved a bump up. Gallatin is the reason he got the bump up that he did. You know. Yeah. Because he was only supposed to go to the Treasury, not state. And yeah. that was Gallatin's
1: fault. Exactly. And so... Robert Smith, congratulations, at least on this podcast. You are getting some credit here. You are getting your seat at the table.
2: Yes, very much so. Very much so. Very interesting uh, discussion and story to tell. Uh, Certainly a marginalized figure who uh, deserves to be at least mentioned more than he was. Absolutely.
1: And so we are going to wrap up. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and listeners. Definitely listen to Drinks with Great Minds in History, learn more about some of the folks that we've talked about. Thank you so much for being on.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a great time, a great story to learn. And I hope uh, that, you know, both of uh, us are able to uh, encourage our listenerships to listen to our mutual podcast as, uh, you know, a different approach to each, uh, you know, each podcast is a different approach to these great figures, these great minds. So, Thank you so much, Jerry, for having me on. This was a great time.
1: Thank you so much, Zach. And thank you to everybody. I will be posting uh, information about Drinks with Great Minds in History on my social media around the release of this episode. I'll have links on the sources uh, page for this episode. Check it out wherever great podcasts can be found. Zach, thank you so much again. Thank you so much, listeners. And until next time, stay safe and healthy be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
2: Hello, everyone.